take your Bibles, please, and turn to John chapter 2. John chapter 2. We are in a series for uh, preceding our Easter time, kind of a Lent series, if you were, and leading into Easter called Broken and Restored. And here is the bottom line. Apart from Jesus, you're broken. Uh, You are dead in your transgression and sins, and I don't know how more broken you can get than dead. Uh, So you are dead in your transgressions and sin, but Christ has made you alive. He's restored you, and there there is so much in that term restored. There's the, this truth, it's more than an idea. It's a truth that you are not who you appear to be, that God has created you in his image, and he's restoring you to, to glory. And we're not there yet, but we're on our way, right? Right? We're headed there. So this series is In what ways are we broken, and in what ways has Christ come to restore us? And so I think in this context that some of the greatest words in the Bible are these. The word became flesh and made his dwelling, his tabernacle, his home among us. Jesus, the word, God incarnate, fully God, fully man, made his home among us. And in that, he has come to restore us. So in John chapter 2, I'm going to give you the key verse, big idea, a couple of truths. We're going to read the passage, and then I'm going to draw some other truths out of it. But here's the big idea in chapter 2. It says, Jesus answered them, saying this, destroy this temple. There we go. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. These passages that we're looking at in this uh, study called Broken and Restored, we're looking at passages where Jesus, while he was alive, speaks of his death and what that implies, what that means for us, because I think every one of them, every one of them has a different meaning. Remember last week, that I said one of my goals is to help us all learn to read the Bible in a way that will both bring us life. You know, typically, many of us, most of us, we, we read the Bible, we read a story, that story ministers to us, but we read it out of the context in which it's contained. We'll just pull out a story. So, for instance, today, John chapter 2, the the last half of John 2, we're going to see that Jesus goes in and cleanses the temple. Famous story of driving the money changers out of the temple. And we'll read this story, but we read it out of context. And each of the gospel writers, I know this is kind of a basic truth we've spoken about over the years, but every one of the gospel writers has a different intent, a different audience, a different goal. So you should read the context in which it was given. For instance, John chapter 2, we have the cleansing of the temple. Well, all the other gospel writers put it at the end. They put the cleansing of the temple during the week of passion. And so scholars argue, discuss, let's say, uh, debate, is there one cleansing 
was there one cleaning out of the temple and John just places it here? Or are there two? Was there one at the beginning of the ministry and one at the end of Jesus' ministry? And depending on who you read, you're going to get a different response. My thought is, honestly, I don't know. Today's Sunday, so I believe there's probably one. Yesterday was Saturday. I thought there were probably two cleansings. So I I honestly, I don't know what the answer is. Now, conservative scholars usually go with one. Others even not conser- even conservatives, they, they still debate. I think John puts it here for a reason. John has it here to show something. And what is it that John is trying to show us, even beyond just the cleansing of the temple? What in the overall scope is John trying to teach us in his gospel? Do you, do you know the story that precedes this? The wedding feast where Jesus does what? He turns the water into wine. And what did they say at the end of the wedding about the wine? He saved the best for last. He saved the best for last. So you have this idea right in the story before uh, this of a new wine. A wine that is better than the old. The old is gone. The new has come. Jesus goes into the temple. He cleanses the temple. And they say, show us a sign. And he says, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. What is he trying to say? I think John is saying, look, there is a new temple, a better temple. It's not the old temple. The sacrificial system is going to be done away with. And the new temple, Jesus, and we're going to see us, is better. It's a better temple than the old. Better wine, better temple. We lead into chapter 3. You know the story that comes after this? Anybody? John 3.16. Anybody got it? Nicodemus, thanks. Nicodemus comes next. What is he saying? New birth. Better. Life. Eternal. So in the context, as we read John 2 and John 3, John is trying to show us Jesus is better than. Author of Hebrews, Jesus is better than. What we receive in Jesus is it's better than the old wine. It's better than the old temple. It's better than the old life. Now, I'm not going to preach John 3 because I'm giving that to Gabriel next week. I thought he could handle John 3.16. So he's got, he's got John 3 next week, and it's going, to be, it's going to be awesome. Please be here. When um, I, I, I'm not proud of this, but I'm going to tell you the story anyway. By the way, when I expose my own sin, I only show you what I feel comfortable showing you, right? I don't tell you everything, Um, but I I sometimes reveal enough to say I'm a flawed individual. Uh, (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, brother. It's good to be loved. Um, When I was in my 20s, you may not believe this about me, but... I was known to have a sarcastic sense of humor. I know, it's a shock. Um, I pictured this not filtered um, as well as it's filtered now. Let's pretend there's a filter now. But it wasn't quite so filtered. So my family has some stories about being with me at times where everything came undone. 
And just one example, and this is a very minor one. My brother and I, we were with some dates, and we went to Baskin-Robbins. We're in our 20s. And you know, Baskin-Robbins is famous for what kind? 31 flavors, right? Lots. Lots of flavors. Go into Baskin-Robbins. Up on the board, there it is, my favorite. Rocky Road. It's right there on the board. And so I say to the uh, person who's scooping, I'll take some Rocky Road. She goes, oh, we're, I'm sorry, we're out of Rocky Road. I'm like, well, it's on the board. Why is it on the board if you don't have it? And she, I'm sorry, we're out. I said, okay, where is the list of ice creams you have? She goes, well, just look at the, look at the labels right here across the glass, and um, they're all right here. So I go down, okay, okay. I'm going to take this chocolate swirl right here. Oh, I'm sorry, we're out of that one. So I said to her, hey, is there a list of, is there another list of flavors that you don't have that you'd like to share with me? Um, she was not blessed by that. It was kind of like the soup Nazi, suddenly no ice cream for you. Uh, last night, Adam and I went to, to dinner. I was ordering. She said, what side would you like with that? I said, well, where's the list of your sides? She goes, oh, it's right here. I said, you've got all these sides? She goes, yes. Okay, I'll, I'll take some onion rings. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, we don't have that. <laughs> I just smiled at her and said, hey, no problem. Everything else look good? She goes, yep, okay, I'll take this. I was so proud of myself. For not saying, you just told me everything was on there. We all have this junk in us that stirs us and gets us worked up. You never know when it's going to come out. This is a minor example. We need a savior. We need somebody who can help us out of this junk. Now, it's taken me 40 years to restrain myself. <laughs> and I'm still not there because it still wants to come out. It's just the filter is a little stronger than it used to be. And I'm going to say, that's godliness. But who knows, right? Jesus goes into the temple, but he has a passion for something entirely different. He's got a passion for his father's house. He's got a passion for the presence. So let's just read the story, and then I'm going to draw some truths from it, okay? Here we go. John chapter 2, verses 12 and following. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples, <coughs> excuse me, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? 
I would have said this whip uh, gives me the authority right now, but Jesus in a different response. He answers them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, but you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at this Passover feast, Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entreat himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. All right. Jesus, at this point in his ministry, is in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. Passover feast, big deal. It was a big, big deal. Uh, millions came to the city to celebrate Passover. It was the largest of their feast days. You remember the story that this celebrates when the death angel passed over the homes that had the blood on it uh, in Egypt. For those of you not from Bible backgrounds, this is from Exodus when Moses is delivering the nation of Israel out of Egypt. The final plague or final demonstration of the power of God was when the firstborn were killed in the uh, Egyptian households, but the blood of the lamb was put on the doorpost and the angel of death passed over. This is, I mean, I'm not going to preach that sermon, although it's a good one, um, but this is the, the feast of Passover. It is the sacrificial system at its highest point. This is the celebration. So Jesus goes into the temple. Now, the whole idea of selling doves and sheep and cattle at a church service, we, we, we have trouble getting our heads around that, uh, that picture. But I, I, I put a picture of the temple up here, and I, I, we'll try not to get too bogged down in it. But if you look at the, the kind of the top, there's a place called the priest court. Do you see that at the top? The priest court, that's where only the high priest could go in. This is Herod's temple. The, uh, we had Solomon's temple, then we had uh, the one that um, Ezra and Nehemiah built, but this is kind of an expansion of that called Herod's temple. Then only the priests could go into the holy places. Then you have what's called uh, the court of Israel or the court of the Jews. Only the men could go in there. Then you have the women's court. Only, makes sense, who could go there? Women, Jewish women, thanks. Not a trick question. Um, only the women could go in there. And then on all sides of this building, you have the court of the Gentiles, which is where those who had been converted to Judaism, proselytites from the outside, Gentiles could go into the court of the Gentiles. That's the only place they could go. They couldn't really go inside the building to the women's court, the men's court, or, of course, the priest's court. In this court of the Gentiles, at Passover, you're supposed to bring your sacrifice, your dove, your lamb, whatever you could afford. You're supposed to bring it because this is the high point of the forgiveness of sins for the nation. And so in this time, you brought your sacrifice. 
Now, here's what had developed over the years. What had developed was the priests came to a point where they were saying, okay, we have to approve the sacrifice. And that, that's not really unbiblical. That, you see that in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. The priests had to declare a sacrifice worthy. It had to be without blemish. But what happened here was you couldn't bring your own in. You had to buy one that the priests had already declared worthy. Are you with me? I, I, I mean, it was a closed market, so to speak. You had to buy it at their price in order to make the sacrifice. Not only that, you couldn't buy it with your money. You had to use temple money. So you had to come in and you had to exchange your money for temple money. Then, so there's a markup, right, on getting the temple money. You, you change your money, temple money. And the temple money, only place it's good is... Right. So you're giving them real money. They're giving you monopoly money. You take your monopoly money over to buy the dove or the lamb or whatever. It was a racket. People were making big time, and it was all under the auspices of the church, what God was doing. Listen, I'm not going to, I'm not throwing stones here. The church for 2,000 years has at times been just as guilty of this, of trying to sell forgiveness to people, trying to sell things to people in order to make, to make money. Jesus declares, he, he's ticked off at this. The place that should be the point where the Gentiles are coming in and experiencing God, what they're getting instead is a super Walmart filled with animals in which you can only use super Walmart money, not real money. And they're making money hand over fist. And Jesus is so put out. You know, I've heard people say, is anger a sin? You know, there's a holy, righteous anger where the name of God is being blasphemed. It's not an anger for myself. It's, an, it's a stirring. Jesus enters the temple area and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now, the other gospel writers put this in the Passover week, in the, in the final week of his life, because in some ways there's, a, there's an element here that touch everything except the money. Once you hit the money, things are going to go south really quick. In Matthew 21, when if this is the same accord, but if it's when he's there, he says, it's written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. You've moved from the intention of this place of where the presence of God, isn't that what the temple is? Isn't that where the glory of God is supposed to be, the temple of, that's what it represents, that's what it is, the presence of God is here. Instead of it being the presence of God, now it's like the presence you like the money. The money is being changed here. That's why in the Psalms, it talks about the coming Messiah saying, zeal for your house 
consumes me. And the insults of those who insult you fall on me. What does this say about our restoration process? What does this say about broken and restored? And I want to hit a couple of truths that I think are clear in this passage. The first is this. There is a call on your heart. There's a call on your heart. I'm going to go, I'm going to preach this passage sort of backwards. So if you're following what, that's why I read it in context. I wanted you to see it in context. I'm going to start at the end and move backwards, kind of sharing the truths that I see here. First is this call on your heart. It says at the end of this passage, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. This is after this. He's still in the Passover feast, but he's, he is healing. He is doing miraculous things, not at the Jewish leaders' demands, but in order to touch the hearts of the people. And many of the people are believing in him. And it says, but Jesus would not entrust himself to them. What does that mean? It means he's not giving himself to them fully. He's not, he's not turning himself over to them yet. Excuse me one second while I... Allergies, anyone? Yeah. One day in glory, we're going to have flowers and beauty with no pollen, nothing green. Um, Claim it in Jesus' name. But Jesus would not entrust himself uh, to them. For he, what? He knew all men. He did not need men's testimony about man. For he knew what was in a man. See, here's the deal. Jesus knows what's in your heart. Part of the problem we have is you don't even know what's in your heart. But Jesus does. He sees right into the depths of you. And you're broken. Say amen. Somebody, I'm broken. Hallelujah. You know, once, once you realize you're broken, you're on the path to restoration. Part of the problem is, I'm trying to figure out a way to say this nicely and not that sarcastic dude who showed up at Baskin Robbins. Yeah, I know. Thank you, Jonathan. You're, but you're the only one calling me out. Um, yeah. We live in an age where... We want to encourage you to the point of, of giving your self-esteem a boost. We live in the positive self-esteem age. You know, up until about 100 years ago, this, this is not the idea of man. That you are basically good, but then the world makes you broken. Hello? You know, the idea that we live in now is that you're born basically good, and the problem is that the world and the problems that you have in the world, that's what breaks you. No, you're born broken. That's the biblical idea. You are born into Adam's sin. As a result, you're broken. So we've we've tried to have this positive self-esteem age that builds people up, and we, 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 we give people trophies for just showing up. We live in the little league. Hey, you signed up for little league, you get a trophy. You're special, little boy. 
You're special, little girl. And they are special. But what we've discovered, and there's a New York Times article written by Lauren Slater called The Trouble with Self-Esteem. And what we thought was the problem was that people had too little self-esteem. But what they, uh, psychologists have really discovered is that the more you try and build self-esteem, that the, the real difficulty with humanity is hubris. It's pride. It's an overrealization of self-esteem. That you are really awesome and you're really great and it's just the world that's holding you back. And the Bible says it's not the world that's holding you back. It's the fact that your heart is deceitful. You are broken. And until you come to the place to say, I am not incredibly special, I'm especially broken. You will not get to that place where God can really... But Jesus knows. He knows all men. He knows the state of your heart. Jeremiah said it like this. The human heart is most deceitful and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Well, it's bad. It's, it's deceitful. It's desperately wicked. Romans says, and the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying. For the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's will. He, he, wants, he, wants us to, he wants to change our hearts. God who knows people's hearts confirmed that he accepts Gentiles, but giving them the Holy Spirit just as he gave him for us. He, he wants to change our hearts. He wants to place his presence in us to change us. He even promised in Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of... And this flesh is not like flesh we see as evil flesh. That's, you know, flesh is used in different contexts in the Bible. He's saying, I'm going to give you a moldable, makeable heart. A heart of, a heart of flesh. Now, here, here's the truth, I believe, in a biblical sense, and some people will disagree with me, but I think I'm right. So, um, and it's this, apart from Christ, your heart is broken. You need a new heart. You have a wicked, a desperately wicked heart. He replaces that wicked heart with a heart of flesh. He places his spirit in you. So now, what kind of heart have you got if you're a follower of Jesus? got a heart filled with the spirit of god he's placed his presence in you this is a side point i'm not trying to build up your self-esteem um, because i just went after that uh, I, but i'm trying to tell you quit saying if you're saved that your heart is desperately wicked quit saying it's deceitful instead lean into the presence of god who indwells you unsaved heart of stone desperately wicked saved I think you've got, the, you've got the heart of God. You've got the mind of Christ. Lean into that. Now, you're not going to do everything right. That's not the issue. And I'm not, honestly, I'm not worried about most of you falling into the ditch of you think you're perfect. You know, I, I'm not worried about, but I am worried about you seeing yourself as bad rather than redeemed. You have been restored. You have the very presence of God indwelling you. Lean into that heart. 
lean into that presence that indwells you. There is a call on your heart because there is a call to restoration. Again, I'm not teaching perfectionism here by any stretch of the imagination. But I'm teaching, if you've got God in you, you're better than you think you are. The Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? They're looking for a sign. Jesus, as I said, he said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. Now, obviously, they're confused. Obviously, they're, they're thinking, oh, this physical temple, this building, it's taken 46 years to build this building. And you're saying you're going to raise it in three days? We see in, with the gift of hindsight that the temple he's talking about was his body. He's gonna, it's going to be killed. He's going to be crucified on the cross. We're headed to Palm Sunday. We're headed to the crucifixion. We're headed to Easter. Only after he's raised from the dead do his disciples really realize, you know what Jesus was talking about? I get it now. He is that temple. He is the one who has been spoken of. Why? Old temple, sacrificial system, blood of animals, new temple, the presence of God, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. His presence is here with us. He is the temple. And because of that, what, what was the old sacrificial system supposed to do? Take care of sins. What does Jesus do? Takes care of sins once and for all. He restores. And it's a call. This call to restoration is really important. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, what did Jesus do? He died for us. Praise God. You know, if this message doesn't stir your heart every time, you've got a deceitful... No, wait a minute. You're, there's something... There's something Lean into the truth of the Spirit of God that you were a sinner, but you have been made alive in Christ. You've been raised from death to life. Let me just say this too. Just because you come to church doesn't mean everything is working. Proverbs talks about this. It says, I have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. You can be in the midst of everybody and be an utter ruin. But God wants to, please people hear me, God wants to restore you. He wants to make you whole. Because in Jesus, who is that temple, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you, you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. I know this is a complicated truth, but it's so simple that we can't get our heads around it. All the deity of God lived in Jesus. And you've been given a small part of that. No, no. You've been given the fullness in Christ. Hence our name. We want you and me and all of us to realize that the fullness of God lives in us. That's a challenge, right? That's a statement of faith to say the fullness of God indwells us. 
you, you, apart from Christ, you are less than you think you are. In Christ, you are more than you can even possibly imagine. A number of years ago, there's a study done. What am I doing? A number of years ago, there was a study done in which this half of the class was given a sheet of paper and said, I want you to change this word and make it an anagram. In other words, here's the word, you reorder the letters and make, an, make it another word. This half of the class, but the, the, the command is given to the whole class. Let's pretend this is the whole class right here. Unbeknownst to the class, this half is given one word, and this half of the class is given another word. And the teacher says, as soon as you get the answer, raise your hand. You with me? Take this word. So this half of the class over here is given the word bat. Okay, make that into a different word. When you're done, raise your hands. Right? You don't have to do it. Thank you, though. Thank you for really, thank you for listening to me well. What'd you get? <laughs> this half of the class is given the word whirl. By the way, I think it's impossible to make another word out of this. So this half of the class is going, we got it. This half of the class is like, how did they do that? How did they make it? And then the teacher says, okay, let's move on to the next word. Second word is this. Second word is lemon. Do, do a word with, with lemon. Thank you. This half of the class is given the word slapstick. How about stick slap? Or I don't know what I'm going to do. And so again, this half of the class is like confused. How are they doing that so quick? The third word they're given is cinerama, um, which is a little harder. Anybody? You got it? I told you it was a little harder. Thank you. America is one way. I'm sure there are others. But here's what's interesting. They're both given the same word. By, this is, this is a, how long did that take? Like three minutes? This is like a three-minute study. By the third word, this half of the class got it. And almost nobody from this side of the class got it at all. Within three words, this is in psychological terms called learned helplessness. I'm sorry. It was down at the bottom, but it doesn't. Don't worry about it. It's called learned helplessness is the psychological term where people, once they fail a couple of times, they think they're failures. And as a result, they can, this is not the same as trying to build up your self-esteem, as I was talking about earlier. This is rather trying to help you discover who you are in Jesus. Scott did an awesome sermon uh, two or three weeks ago when I was out of town on the schemes of the enemy. One of the enemy's schemes is to lie to you about who you are. And that every time you stumble and fall, he's going to He's, he's not going to only take credit for causing you to sin. He's going to accuse you for that sin and try to say to you, you are a sinner. Your heart is deceitfully bad. You'll never be any better than this. You'll never get, you'll never accomplish this. You'll never 
be what God called you to do. And people, that is a lie from the pit of hell. Because God has said this about you. I've given you a new heart. I have made you the temple of the living God. We are that temple now. As God said, I will be with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will, they'll be my people. We need to know who we are. We are not helpless. We are not failures. When I do counseling with people, I see this often. Will people come in and say, I'm a, I'm a failure. I'll never be able to get it. I'll never do right. It'll never be better. It'll never be accomplished in my life. This is who I am. And I, I want to say to them, apart from Christ, you're right. That's who you are. But in Jesus, you're the righteousness of God. You are, you are, you've got the presence of the living God indwelling you. You can do more than you can ask or imagine. Things can be accomplished in your life. You have a choice. Do I believe the lies about me that I say to myself and the enemy keeps pointing at me? Or do I believe what the living God says about who I am? That I am his temple. There is a call to restoration because that will lead you, I think, to, to have a passion for the things of God. Backing up in the story, you see the passion of Jesus when he enters the temple and the money changers, and he's like, this is not what my, this is not what the temple is supposed to be. And as a result, he drives them out, he makes a whip of cords, drives them out from the temple. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples later remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Let's tie this together. Apart from Christ, broken. In Christ, restored. Renewed. New heart. Right? Question is, if your heart so to speak, is the home and house of God, what, is, what kind of house have you got there? What, what, kind, of, what kind of home? Is your, is your heart a temple? Or is it something else? Is it a playground? Maybe it's a recreation vehicle. Is it a library of thoughts and facts? Is it a savings and loan? Is it, is it all concerned about money? Is it, a, is it a house of sensuality? Your heart has a desire. Is it a passion for God or one of these kind of things? Or just make up your own. Ask the Spirit of God to shine the light of his truth into your heart to say, I do have a heart, but I'm, I'm renting out rooms here to other stuff that doesn't need to be there. Instead, say about your heart as it's home for God, that zeal for your, this is my passion. 
That's why Paul can say, look, flee from all immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he commits sins, sexually sins where? Against his own body, against his own heart. And he closes it by saying, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You're bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. That's my call on us today. To say, apart from Jesus, broken. In Jesus, you've been restored. With Jesus, walk out the passion of God in your life. Don't give room. Don't give room to other stuff. Lord, we pray today that you would lead us and direct us and guide us and show us areas in our lives where we have given space to things we should not give space to. And instead, oh God, let our hearts be your home in the sense of may a zeal for your house, this temple. We're the new temple. Individually and corporately, we are the temple of the living God. And God, we want to be your people, pursuing your name, having a passion for you. Just take a second. We're going to worship here in just a minute. We're going to give opportunity for you to receive prayer if you want, for healing or direction or your heart, breaking of bondages in your lives. We're going to give that in a second, but this is between you and God. Where's your heart today? What a great opportunity to just say, am I living in this new heart that God has given me by the power of his presence that indwells me? I always think it's great on Sundays like this to just examine. Take a moment of self-reflection. Ask the Spirit of God to show you the state of your heart right now. Maybe he needs to do a little work, a little renovation in his home, in your heart. Clean out some stuff. Just let him. Let him do it for you.